All right, so we're in the Gospel of John this morning. We're starting the Gospel of John. How long is it going to take us to go through the Gospel of John? I have no idea. I will say that there's only 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. There was 50 in Genesis. So you might think, oh, so it should take us like half the time, less than half the time to get through it. Okay. (laughs) If you think that. We're only going through three verses this morning. Settle in. I'm going to tell you something else that we're going to be doing here. It's going to be a little different. Um, uh, We're going to start, I'm going to start uh, once a month doing something that's not related to the book we're going through. So if there's four Sundays in a month, three will go through the Gospel of John, for example, and one will be something entirely different. And I can't tell you what it's going to be, but, you know, it's going to be some sort of topical current event, prophecy update, um, something like that. And I've just felt that I'm going to, that the Lord has been wanting me to do something like that to t- to in the midst of everything else we're doing, so we're going to make it more frequent. So it's going to be once a month. We'll start that in September, actually. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. Um, so... If you remember when we started Sunday services way back in 2017, when we first started meeting here at the Grange, we went through the Gospel of Mark. That was one of the first books that we went through. And uh, I called it the Fast and Furious Gospel. So I thought going back into John would be good to get back into another gospel. The Gospel of John was probably written around 90 AD, give or take. Uh, It was the last of the gospels to be written some 30 or possibly 40 years after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, depending on when you think that they were written. Because it's possible that Matthew, for example, was written in around 50 AD, though they could say, well, 60 AD. It all depends on the copies that they continue to keep finding of the, uh, of the Gospel. Um, and it was written, the Gospel of John was written after the majority, if not all, of the apostles had already died or been martyred. Now, John, as we know, the author, is the author of five books in the New Testament, right? So we have the Gospel of John, you have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and you have the Book of Revelations. Book of Revelation, which came to him, of course, when he was banished to the prison island of Patmos. Now, after he was set free from Patmos, uh, he would return again to Ephesus, where he was living, where he wrote the Gospel of John from, was from Ephesus. He was living in Asia Minor. He was probably taking care of Jesus' mom uh, for a while there as well. And he died around 98 AD, so about eight years or so after he wrote this book. And so in between that time, between roughly, give or take, because we don't have exact dates, of course, uh, is when he wrote John, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, Revelation. And he outlived all the rest of the apostles. Now, John was the brother to James. They were the sons of Zebedee. They were known as the sons of thunder. Uh, And a little trivia note for you about the Gospel of John. John never refers to himself by name in the Gospel. He refers to himself as either the other disciple or one of his favorite terms to refer to himself as, which I always find humorous, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. As if he was the only disciple whom Jesus loved and all the other disciples were just cast aside, right? I always kind of kind of funny myself. And the disciple whom Jesus loved... Well, what about the other disciples? They're all dead at the time I wrote this. They can't say anything, right? No. So 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. I'm assuming you've heard the phrase. Synoptic means similar. It comes from the word meaning summary or synopsis. What it means is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover many of the same events of Jesus' life, most of them from his ministry in Galilee, uh, in much the same order. They're very similar in the way that they approach the things and what they talk about. What I mean by that is nearly 90% of Mark's content, for example, is found in Matthew, and about 50% of Mark's content appears in Luke. And if you look at that in fractions, if you really want to take it that far, <clears throat> that means 13 fourteenths of Mark, four sevenths of Matthew, and two fifths of Luke are taken up in describing the same things in very similar language. That's why they call them the synoptic gospels. John is not a synoptic gospel. One of the reasons is, of course, it was written much later. Those three were written around the same time period. But a very simplistic way of putting it would be that Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on what Jesus taught, and he did. Uh, one example would be the parables. The parables are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there are no, no parables are found in the Gospel of John. Um, <clears throat> And John then focuses more on who Jesus is. Right? And that way to think of it's this, that the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us the events, and the Gospel of John gives us the meaning of the events. Uh, and you're going to see this through different things. For example, seven I am statements in the book of John, seven uh, miracles, though there are more than seven miracles, mind you, in the book of John. There's seven main ones that you usually bring out. Um, that kind of give us the meaning of these events and focus on who Jesus is. Not so much what he did or what he taught, even though that's in there, of course. Each gospel, of course, presents a different perspective on the life of Jesus. We need all four gospels to get the full picture of Jesus, without a doubt. And as you know, the gospels are historical accounts of actual events. They're reliable records containing the life of Jesus. But each gospel has its own purpose. Each gospel has its own emphasis on the ministry of Christ. So Matthew's emphasis is that Jesus is king. And we did go over this one all those years ago when we started Mark. Right? He's the long-awaited Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jude, uh, Luke emphasizes Jesus as the son of man. That's a phrase that Jesus used to describe himself quite often. That phrase is found 20 times in Luke alone. Right? Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus. And Mark emphasizes the, Jesus as the obedient servant. But John's gospel, the purpose of his gospel, the emphasis, you could say, of his gospel is to show us that Jesus is God. That's, you could say, the singular purpose of the gospel of John. John 20, John chapter 20, fast forward really quick, don't worry. We know, not a spoiler. You probably know this. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 tell us that therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. If you can imagine what's not recorded, right? But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the Gospel of John. Right? So let's read John we're only going to read the first three verses. I promise we'll go over more verses next week. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's pray. 
Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that uh, you just speak to us, that your words are spoken, that your spirit speak to us, and you just, Lord, speak into our hearts the message that you have for us this morning, Lord. And we thank you for the hope that's found in it and the stability of our relationship with Christ that can be found by building our lives on this, on the truth of your word. So we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John is both simple and deep, which is illustrated just, for example, in this first chapter, in these first verse, in the first verse. We don't even have to go for the first three verses. Just in the first verse shows the simplicity of the Gospel of John and the depth of the Gospel of John all at the same time. The Gospel of John has been called a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim that talks about the simplicity and the depth of the Gospel of John. Matter of fact, there's a professor, Charles Erdman, who was from the Princeton Theological Seminary. He was a professor back there in the 30s. He said, the Gospel of John's stories are so simple that even a child will love them, but its statements are so profound that no philosopher can fathom them. Again, just showing the simplicity and the depth of the Gospel of John. So let me start with a question. I'm going to go through the Gospel of John. Let me start with a question. Why do you think that John felt the need to approach the life and the ministry of Jesus from a different perspective than the other Gospels? I mean, we could also ask, why do you think it took him so long to write it? Why did he wait, you know, 30 or 40 years past the other Gospels to write his? Why did he take a different approach? than the others, which is more of just a recounting of the life of Jesus. Well, it has to do with one thing. It really has to do with one thing. It's called Gnosticism. Okay? Gnosticism is a long word. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, and that word means to know. Gnosticism had crept into the church even at the early stages of the church. I mean, we, of course, can read all the letters and all the epistles that Paul wrote, but not just Paul, but the other apostles. And we can read, you know, about the things that they were instructing people on about the gospel and how, you know, uh, uh, people were already starting to fall away or have different views about what the gospel meant. And they're trying to get people back on track. We can read these corrections through the letters as they write them. Well, John's gospel about the life of Jesus is really a letter to show who Jesus is, to show that Jesus is God because of the heresy that had already come into the early church at that time. And it came through Gnosticism. I mean, and what not, and I'll give you a, a definition of Gnosticism, a really bare bones definition of Gnosticism here in just a second. But there were even followers of John the Baptist who, in a sense, had been you know, affected by some of these Gnostic teachings concerning Jesus. They didn't have a true idea uh, or understanding of who Jesus was. They thought Jesus was a spirit, which has to do with, with Gnosticism. Here's a quote by Chuck Smith. It says that Chuck, the church wasn't very old before heresy arose, the denying of the deity of Jesus Christ, because that's what Gnosticism is going to do. It denies the deity of Jesus Christ. It puts him on the level of man. Since Gnosticism with his concepts of Jesus and really confusing concepts of Jesus, Gnosticism is incredibly confusing if you were to study it, is part divine, part man, and yet sort of a phantom kind of thing. They made up stories that as he walked on the sandy beach, he wouldn't leave footprints because he wasn't really real. 
Right? And their idea was anything that is real is evil. The world is so evil that God could not have created the world. And so originally there was the pure, holy God, and emanations went out from this pure, holy God. And finally, one of these emanations got so far from God that it no longer knew God. And it was from this emanation that created the world, and thus the world was created by an evil force, and everything material is evil. And so Jesus could not have been a man, else he would have been evil. So he was a phantom. And a lot of weird things. And so John wrote this gospel in order to correct some of those early false teachings that had begun to permeate the church. That's what Chuck Smith says. Right? These were heretical teachings. So in a nutshell, Gnosticism was perhaps the most dangerous heresy that threatened the early church. The principles of Gnosticism contradict what it means to be a Christian. Now, Gnosticism was influenced by philosophers such as Plato. And it's based on two false premises. First, it embraces a dualism regarding spirit and matter, right? Gnostics believe that matter is inherently evil, as Chuck put it there in, in his little thing, and spirit is good. So as a result of this belief, Gnostics say that anything done in the body, even the grossest or most vile sin, has no meaning because real life exists in the spirit realm only, right? And the second thing is, is that Gnostics claim to possess an elevated knowledge. Remember, gnosis means to know. So Gnostics... Uh, claim to possess an elevated knowledge, a higher knowledge, a knowledge not found in the Bible, right? But acquired on some sort of mystical plane of existence. Gnostics see themselves as a privileged class, elevated above everyone else by their higher and deeper knowledge of God. It can be confusing because when you study Gnosticism, you're going to find that there are many, 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 many heads to the snake that is Gnosticism. And not all heads agree with each other, and some heads will be glad to bite off one of the other heads if they could, and, and they contradict each other. But in a nutshell, that's basically what the Gnostics were teaching. Now, don't think that Gnosticism doesn't exist anymore, because it does. Right? Gnosticism is still around. It hasn't died out. I mean, some people will tell you, oh, Star Wars and, and uh, the Matrix are based on Gnostic ideas. Right? They'll go as far as that. And I'm not going to say that you're not going to find them in those movies. But as far as churches go and Christian churches, or at least churches that claim to be Christian churches, there are Gnostic churches still around. Now, one of the local ones, for example, uh, is a church called Ecclesia Gnostica, which is Latin for the Church of Gnosis. It's, it's, it's based in LA, that's where the primary church is, but it has parishes in Seattle and it has parishes in Portland. Right? So they consider themselves a Christian church and they believe that salvation is achieved through Gnosis, right? described as an inner knowingness or a change of consciousness. Right? And so that's just one. That's, that, there are more, that's just one because that's a local one. Right? But we're not here really to teach on Gnosticism. But it's just so you know, in a nutshell, you have an idea of what the early church was dealing with, which was that these Gnostics, I said Gnostic, Gnosticism and Christianity don't combine. They, 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 they can't be together. They, they, <clears throat> they just don't work together. So Because the idea of Gnosticism, of course, is that material things or matter is evil and that spirit is good. The spirit realm is good. So reality is only in the spirit realm. The rest isn't. So they figure, well, if Jesus is as good as the Christian church teaches and Jesus you know, is this, then Jesus, therefore, is a phantom or he's a spirit, but he can't be a man. 
He couldn't be human. Right? Otherwise, he would have been evil. And therefore, we have the Gospel of John. Because this is what John wrote to contradict. But he was not writing it as a debate. Do you understand? <clears throat> this isn't his platform on which to debate Gnosticism. He didn't come into a group, okay, we're going to, you and the leading heretical Gnostic teachers are going to get together and we're going to have a debate over Gnosticism and Christianity. No, he's reaching, he wrote this gospel to, to show who Jesus was and in that defies what Gnosticism says about Jesus. And not just Gnosticism, but any false teaching that might have crept into the church concerning who Jesus was. He wants everyone who's building their life on the foundation that is Christ Jesus to understand who Jesus is. And understand that Jesus is God. All the Gospels touch on the fact that Jesus is God. But John's is the most prevalent, the most forward of all the Gospels to let you know who Jesus is. Because there's a lot of teachings about Jesus, and a lot of people accepted Jesus as a great moral teacher, but wouldn't accept him as God. The Jews wouldn't accept his deity, of course. They wouldn't accept him as the Messiah. So John is writing to both Jew and Greek, and he's writing to let them know who Jesus is, right? so that they will come to believe and therefore be saved through the salvation that's only found in Christ Jesus. So we have the Gospel of John, and within this first chapter, though we're not going to get all of them today, you're going to see seven titles or names that identify Jesus as God. And the very first one is in verse 1, which is the Word. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word in the Greek is the word logos. That's it right there. That's the Greek for logos. Okay, the word logos, the first use that they find of this word is around 600 B.C., by a Greek philosopher whose name was Heraclitus. And he talked about the Logos as a divine reason or a plan which coordinates a changing universe. Now, it's no accident that John starts the Gospel of John by saying, in the beginning was the Word. John is calling back all the way to creation, to before creation, to the book that we just got done teaching through, after a year and a half, he's calling all the way back to Genesis 1, 1, basically, right? And you shouldn't have forgotten it by now, but just in case that, you know, that was so long ago when we touched on it. I mean, we spent, I think it was like two weeks just going through the first two verses of Genesis and then like five weeks getting through the first chapter, right? But, but Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is calling back to Genesis 1, 1, and he's saying, in the beginning was the word. So if you want to paraphrase that, what John is saying was, when the beginning began, the word was already there. Right? The word predates time and creation, is what he's saying. Right? Because the word is eternal. Now we just read it as a verse, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We may not see all that in what he's saying, but to the Jew and to the Greek, both, who are reading this, they're going to understand things that we didn't necessarily read in the English. Now, why is John using the word? Why is John using the Greek word logos? Right? Well, because he knows his audience, number one. 
He knows who he's talking to, right? both Greek and Jew. Let's look at the Jews first. Jewish rabbis often referred to God, especially in his more personal aspects, in terms of his word. Right? They would speak to, they would spoke of God himself as the word of God. Uh, there are ancient Hebrew editions of certain Old Testament texts. For example, Exodus 19.17. You read Exodus 19.17 in your translation, or even in my translation, and it just says, Moses brought the people out of camp to meet God. But there are actually some ancient Hebrew editions of that manuscript in Exodus where it says, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the word of God. That is, that is one of the ways that the Jews looked at God, was as the word of God. Now, in the mind of Jews, in the mind of ancient Jews specifically, the phrase the word of God could be referred to, could be used to refer to God himself. But it was also used in the Old Testament, the, the, the idea of the word of God or the word as uh, an instrument over the execution of God's will. Right? Psalm 33, 6, for example, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Psalm 107, 20, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So the phrase, the word, meant something to the Jew. And of course, in the beginning, meant something to the Jew as well. They would have understand because they had this idea of the word being God. They understand what John is calling back to when he says in the beginning. So for his Jewish readers, John specifically, by, for his Jewish readers, by introducing Jesus as the word, I mean, we know that John is referring to as Jesus. They may not know just at the beginning that John is referring to Jesus yet, but all that will be clear, trust me, by the time we get through there. But we know he's talking about Jesus. So by introducing Jesus as the word, John is pointing his Jewish readers back to the Old Testament where the word of God is associated with the personification of God's revelation. Who's the perfect revelation of God's word? It's Jesus. So he's pointing Jesus back to the Old Testament and saying that Jesus is the word of God. Now, Greek philosophers saw the word as something different. I mean, the Greeks had logos, pathos, and ethos. These are philosophical beliefs. Pathos dealt with emotions. Ethos dealt with authority. And logos had to do with reason. Yet logos went much deeper than just that. Logos was thought of as a bridge between the transcendent God and the material universe. Logos was the power which puts sense into the world. Logos made the world orderly instead of chaotic. Right? The Logos was the power that set the world in perfect order and kept it in perfect order. They saw Logos as the ultimate reason that controlled all things. That's how the Greeks looked at Logos. So in this very first verse... John says to both the Jews and to the Greeks, he says, listen, for centuries you've been talking and thinking and writing about the word or the logos. Now I'm going to tell you who he is. This is Apologetics 101. Right? John is going to meet both the Jews and the Greeks where they're at. He's He's going to use their understanding of what that means to point them to Jesus. 
<clears throat> using use terms that they already understand, right? To point them to Jesus. It's very similar to what Paul did in Acts chapter 17 in Athens, right? When he comes upon the tomb of the unknown God, right? And he took that tomb of the unknown God. He turned that around, their beliefs about what that was, and he pointed them to Jesus, right? You have this tomb of this unknown God. Let me tell you who this unknown God is to you, right? And he points them to Jesus. It's very similar. So he tells them, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. How do you be with God and also be God at the same time? If we're only talking about one person. How can you be with right, God and be God at the same time? What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the Trinity. right? The word was with God and the word was God. You have the word who was eternal Right? with God, yet is God. The word is distinct from God, yet is God. So you have God the Father, you have God the Son. Right? All you have to add is the Holy Spirit, you got the Trinity. Three distinct persons, yet one God. Right? It's really straightforward and direct. Only the Jehovah Witnesses could mess that one up, which they have. Right? The Jehovah Witnesses take that verse and they say the word was with God and the word was a God. Now here's the thing about that. If you ever run into a Jehovah Witness and you're having this discussion about John 1.1, 1, 1, they, they defend their translation of John 1.1 1, 1 by having to do with some weird grammatical rule concerning the Greek and having no article before the word. They say that there has to be an article there, which is why they put a. Uh, and then they also changed the God from uppercase to lowercase G, which means they're um, denying that Jesus is God by doing that. Okay? But it, but it's, it has this to do with this weird grammatical rule. But yet that weird grammatical rule that they use to change this verse in John 1.1 1, 1 seems to only apply to this verse in John 1.1. 1, 1. Because when you go through the Bible and you look at other places in the Bible, the Greek text is in, in many different verses in Matthew and many different verses in Luke and other verses in John and, and verses in Romans, etc., where you see that same exact grammar without the, uh, without the article before it where you're talking about God, where it doesn't say a God, it just says God. And it's a capital G, not a lowercase g. They didn't change any of those. It doesn't apply to any of those verses. Their little grammatical rule that they've used to change John 1.1 1, 1 seems to only apply to John 1.1 1, 1 for them. Where they're denying that Jesus is God. It only works where it suits their purposes. Not only that, they quote in their book where they defend this translation, they quote two Greek authorities about it. They misquote both of them. And one of them has demanded and he might have already gotten it by now, I'm assuming, that they take his name out of the book because he's like, I want nothing to do with this. You guys are crazy. right? And the other was an occultic. He wasn't even a Greek language uh, authority. He's, he, he's an occult practicing spiritist. He wasn't even a, a Greek authority in any way. 
Matter of fact, when you actually talk this over and you look at all the different uh, surviving manuscripts and stuff in the original Greek and stuff like that concerning this verse, there isn't a Greek authority. There isn't anybody who's a real professor of Greek who's going to tell you that this has been done wrong. No one's going to say that because it's not. This is exactly translated correctly and does not need to be fixed. There's no true, legit Greek expert anywhere that agrees with the Jehovah Witnesses and their translation of John 1.1. None. None. So, and then verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, affirming what he's already said in verse 1, that the Word has existed eternally. The Father is distinct from the Son. The Son is distinct from the Father. They are equally God, yet they are separate persons, and they've existed eternally. And verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through who? The Word. Jesus. Yes. All things. Now this is where it starts to fly in the face of Gnosticism. Because remember, he's, he's going to be showing them that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is Logos. Okay? But they're, they're like, well, Jesus can't be anything like that. He wouldn't have created the earth because the earth was not created by God because it's evil. Remember, matter, evil. Spirit realm, good. But he's saying, no, listen, all things were made through him. All things were made through the word, right? God couldn't have created the world because the world was matter, so therefore it's evil. God's not evil, but what does it tell us? Even in Colossians, for by him, Jesus, all things were created. Right? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things, what? Hold together. That's what it says in Colossians. That's almost a definition of their belief of logos, which is that logos holds all things together. John's telling them, Jesus is the word. In him, all things are held together. In who? The word. Who's the word? Jesus. This is what he's breaking down for them. Right? We know where John is going with this. He's telling them that Jesus is the word. Revelation 19, 13. He is clothed in the robe, dipped in blood, and by the name, and the name by which he is called is what? Is the word of God. Jesus is the word. He's the eternal word. He's the unchanging word. He's the perfect word of God. He's the incarnate word. We haven't even touched on that yet because it's later in the chapter. Right? But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You think that he's that John is stepping into controversial territory here just in the first three verses, verses and who he's talking to and what he's saying? He hasn't even yet until he gets to verse 14 and he says, no, the word became flesh because, oh, no, now you've crossed the line, right? You crossed the line with that one. No, he's, he's spirit. No, he's not. He's fully human, fully God. 
He's the incarnate word. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Right? After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right? Jesus is the living word. He's the word. I'm trying to pull you know, an application out of this, out of this, the first three verses, when we haven't even finished the whole chapter or taken it off in chunks. It's a real simple thing for you to, to take with you, which is, what is your understanding of Jesus and who Jesus is? When we build our foundation on the rock, on Jesus, we need to have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. So when we go through this book, and John continues to show you that Jesus is God, it's it's for your benefit, for you to get a clearer picture. If you didn't already understand this, to have a clear understanding of who Jesus is, because you need to know Jesus isn't just man. He isn't just some good moral teacher. He wasn't just some great philosopher or rabbi or whoever. He's God. And he leaves you no other explanation. I think it's C.S. Lewis who has that quote, right? The Gospels leave you no other explanation of who Jesus is. You're either going to accept him for what he says, which is Jesus is God, or you're going to think he's a loony. There's no other choice you get to make. But the world has all these different choices and all these different views on who Jesus is. And it's not necessarily Gnosticism, but, but you can look through churches today, even Christian churches, and see them teach different views of Jesus that aren't who Jesus is. They don't line up with Scripture. You need to know who Jesus is. So when you're presented with a false picture of Jesus, you can clearly say that's not correct. That's not who Jesus is. I know because I've studied who Jesus is. I've, you know, I, I, I see what the Word says, what God's Word says, who Jesus is. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is eternal. What, you know, Mormons think Jesus was created. You know, even Jehovah Witness deny the deity of Christ. And yet they consider themselves Christian religions. Not all Christian religions are equal. The Catholics have strange ideas too about certain things. You've got to keep it here in the Word of God. Not only that, one of the other things that you can just take from these first three verses here is just when you're talking to people about who Jesus is. It's good to have an understanding of where they're coming from and what they think and what they know. John understood who he was talking to. He understood what the Greeks thought about the word logos. He understood what the Jews thought about the idea of the word of God. He uses both of those ideas to point them to Jesus. It's a good idea to understand what the culture thinks about things, about what they believe on things. So when they come to you speaking these spiritual words or the spiritual language or talking to you and stuff like that, and it doesn't line up with God's word, you can use their thoughts on these things to point them to the truth that's found in God's word about Jesus. Here's what that actually means. Right? I see you're worshiping in that tomb of the unknown God. Let me tell you who God is. I see you have this idea about the word of God. Let me show you what the Bible says about the word of God. We can have these things. But the important thing, really, is us just to have a basic understanding. That's what John's going to give us, is this understanding of who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. Because a lot of people will tell you, Jesus never said he was God. And yes, you can't go through the Bible and find the spot where Jesus stood up on the mountain and proclaimed over everywhere, I am God. 
right? He never said it in so many words. He said it, right? Before Abraham was, I am. That's in the Gospel of John. We'll get there. There's the I am statements. Each one is a statement that he is God. There's a reason they wanted to stone him and kill him when he said these things. Because they knew he was blaspheming. They felt he was blaspheming. They felt that he was declaring himself to be God, but they didn't accept him as God, so they wanted to kill him. If the Jews and religious leaders knew that he was declaring himself to be God, why is it when other people read this scripture think, oh, Jesus never said that. He never said he was God. Well, why did they want to kill him? Why were they looking to kill him? Why did he go up on why did Why did he get crucified? If he never said these things. Listen, Jesus is the word of life. He's the living word. 1 John 1, 1 through 4 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Listen to the language that John uses there in First John. He's saying, listen, I, my life can testify and proclaim to you the truth that is, that is that Jesus is the word of life and that Jesus is eternal life and that Jesus was made manifest to us. My life can testify to that truth. And that's what I'm going to use it for. We have seen and heard this, and now we proclaim it to you. Well, your life testifies to the truth of Jesus as well. And you can do that same thing. You have, you have seen and heard his word. You have seen it worked out through and in your life, and now you can proclaim it to the world. He says, we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. You want their joy to be complete as well because you want to bring them to Jesus. John is presenting Jesus as the word because the world has knowledge. The world has knowledge. The world knows lots of things. There are people, you probably even know some, that have great knowledge. They're filled to the brim with knowledge. They know tons of stuff. You might even use them for reference material, right? Hey, tell me about this. Oh, I can tell you all about that, right? And they can go on for hours and talk to you about it. They have so much knowledge. The world's full of knowledge. The Bible tells us knowledge puffs up. The Bible tells us that knowledge isn't, isn't eternal in that sense. Worldly knowledge as we know it, knowledge as we think of it in the sense of, of learning and schooling and these things, the way we view knowledge from a worldly aspect, that's going to go away. That's not going to last forever. But the knowledge that we get from the Spirit of God the knowledge that leads us into the, to the way of truth, the knowledge that leads us into the way of eternal life through Christ Jesus, that knowledge, that's the knowledge we need. The world's full of knowledge. They're full of enlightenment, right? How many people, I mean, you know, well, I know this special way to do this. I have the secret sauce, right? I don't give out my recipe. That's kind of what John was going up against was the Gnostics and their idea of the fact that they felt enlightened because they had the true knowledge, right? If you join us, you can find the true knowledge. You pay us the monthly fee, we'll give you the little book and we'll give you the five secrets that'll help you be a millionaire before the end of the year, right? We've, we have the secret knowledge. 
Jesus wasn't a secret knowledge. He's not hidden behind the paywall. You don't have to subscribe to anything to get to Jesus. He came and said, no, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anybody that comes to me will be saved. There's no special way to do it. It's not hidden knowledge. You don't have to join the group. You don't have to become part of this cult or that cult or that whatever. Right? It, it does no, there's no dues. There's no fees. There's no special haircut. All you have to do is come to me. We talked about this. Jesus is the revelation, the revelation from God. Revelation, the word is apocalypto right? We talked about this when we went through Revelation. It means unveiling. It means revealing. Jesus was God revealed to men. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't hidden. He was right out there for everyone to see and accept and believe in. But they play it that way. That's what the Gnostics were playing it. Oh, we have the secret super knowledge. We're better than you because of it. And there may be people that you know that are that way that they feel that they have the secret super knowledge about things. But the truth is the only knowledge they need is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's free to everybody. And it's not secret. And it's not hidden because it's in God's word. And it's right here plain as day for anyone to read and learn from and grow from and accept. So the world has a lot of knowledge. But the truth is that they don't know anything because they don't know Jesus personally. People can know Jesus or know of Jesus, but not know Jesus. People need to know Jesus. They need to know him personally. They need to believe in his word. They need to understand that the word is truth and the word is salvation. All right, the word is the truth. The word of truth, as it tells us in Ephesians, is the gospel of salvation, actually. The word of truth is the gospel of salvation. I'll end with these verses. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with, your, with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Paul wrote. He says the word is near you, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. It's the same word for Jew or Greek. It's the same word for anybody who needs Jesus. I don't care what their background is, I don't care you know, what their political affiliation is, I don't care what country they came from, I don't care where they're living or what they're doing. The word that needs to be in their mouth and in their heart is Jesus. That's the word that they need. Because Jesus is the word and the word brings salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this. I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for the truth that's found in your word. And I pray, Lord, you just help us stay in that, build our lives upon that so we can proclaim that. I pray, Lord, that we continue to apply your word to our hearts your word to our life. Continue to let your word direct our paths and to point people to the truth of the word, which is Jesus is the word, that Jesus is God. And we can cut through. It doesn't matter how other people may, 
you know, what they think of certain things. We can cut through all that by just giving them the truth of the gospel, by speaking the truth in love to them, the truth of Jesus. Because it applies to all people, no matter where they come from, no matter who they are. The word is the same for all of them. And that word is that they need Jesus. So we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we can just continue to shine your light and be a light, Lord, in the darkness. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.